continue here in our text. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, um, just as we were last week. Uh, but now we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9. Um, I love being able to study verse by verse, walking through a book of the Bible, because as I've said with some of you in conversation, it's exciting for me to be able to, one, you're able to study the book as a whole, but mostly I enjoy the consistency of the book, that you're not jumping through back and forth, picking um, text seemingly at random, and trying to figure out the context each and every time. We're continuing within the same context, and it builds off of a continuous thought. Um, which makes it a lot clearer and easier for us to understand. Um, just a little bit of recap in case you haven't been with us. Again, we're going to fly through um, the beginning, but it's very important that we understand the context of what we're going to be looking at in light of where we've been. He, he kind of gives a, a summation in verses 1 through 4 of a lot of what it is that he's talking about. He's writing to a church, again, the Colossian church, the church at Colossae, writing to believers. He's built the case of the supremacy of Christ, saying that he is preeminent, he is supreme, he is sufficient for all things. Then he goes in and continues to talk about our completeness in Christ, being rooted in Christ. And in verses 1 through 4, there's a lot of conversation about, since you are risen with Christ, in verse 1, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. And he continues in the following verses saying, you are dead to sin, you are dead to the world, and you are made alive in Christ. There's a big contrast, right? Perhaps no greater contrast for us than death and life. It, those who are in Christ, who have come to salvation, who have received Christ by, by grace through faith, you are dead to sin and you are alive to Christ, raised to a newness of life. And this is going to be an important point as we continue on in these verses to understand that that position is what everything is going to be talking about is going to be rooted in. He's making it clear that positionally the believer is alive in Christ. So not because so because of that, look then to heavenly things. Set your affections on things that are above. Don't be so concerned with all of the temporal things that are on the earth, the things that are going to pass away. Have the heavenly mindset. Focus on the eternal things. Um, one of the greatest things, and even just the song that Dave and Christina were singing, um, without the blood, there is no hope for you and me. We understand the, the eternal ramifications of our sin. We understand the punishment that that is going to bring. We understand that hell is a reality. Um, regardless of, of the culture trying to take that away and say hell is not really um, a reality. It is absolutely true and it is absolutely real. And we understand that reality. But because of the blood of Christ... We have the eternal mindset of the eternal uh, glory of heaven. And so he's continuing in, in these verses 1 through 4 from last week. This is to be your focus. Focus on the heavenly things. Set your affections, your, your heart, your mind, your spirit, your intellect, your will, all of it, the core of who you are. Set those things and the things that are above. Don't be so concerned about everything else. Your whole life shouldn't be driven about getting the best job, having the best materials, having the best of all these things. Have the heavenly mindset paying attention to what it is that he's asked. And again, he, he, he does this in response to what we see in chapter 2 of the different heresies that were befalling the church there, that were creeping in, the teachings, and saying, you don't need to give in to asceticism and this rigorous self-denial. You don't need to give in to mysticism where you have to have super spiritual visions where God is giving you and you alone incredible new visions that he hasn't revealed to anyone else because you're much more special than everyone. Remember, the whole case was that Christ is sufficient for salvation. Christ in Him only, Him alone, 
Stop trying to add to it. It's not your works. It's not your philosophy. It's not these mystical experiences that you have. It's not your ability to be so disciplined in denying yourself. It is simply Christ and Him alone. So then you get to verse 5, and Paul is going to really sink into how we do this. Again, I, I mentioned last week, we're kind of entering in that much more practical portion. The first two chapters, Paul is heavy on doctrine. He's heavy in theology. Because that is the root of what all that is that we're going to be doing. Because again, now think about this in the inverse. If you first start with a list of, this is how we are to act and conduct ourselves. These are the things that we are to deny and not to do. And then at the very end, you're reminded of simply, oh, because you're alive in Christ. The order is completely out of whack to where you're learning, do this, don't do this. Do these things, these other four things, but you can't do these two. Um, I'm going to take a quick poll. How many of you have ever heard, um, I don't go to church, I don't like church, because it's just a list of do's and don'ts? Have you guys ever heard that from someone? Some of us probably have thought it a lot. Okay, When you're younger, that tends to be the thinking. As a teenager, you're the smartest person in the world, right? I know I thought I was. No way I could be wrong about this. I'm 13 now. Okay. So understanding everything that we're going to be talking about is based on the first two chapters to where he has made the case of what Christ done has done being sufficient for salvation. And because you are in him, you are made alive. You are dead to sin, dead to the world, made alive in Christ. So keeping in mind that only these things are only going to be possible in light of everything he's built the case for in chapters 1 and 2. Because to do so in the, in the inverse way is simply a list of rules in the hopes of maybe attaining some spirituality or favor with God. And again, going to keep going back to, the, to Dave and Christina's wonderful song. Um, our works are filthy rags, pretty much at best. And like they said, that's all they will ever be. They are filthy rags. And how many of us are really quick to want to grab a bunch of filthy rags? Um, not many. So, so let's look at the text. We're going to be verses uh, 5 through 9. We'll read the text and then we'll pray. So in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil... Con- I, I said this word perfectly, by the way, last, every other time I ever read it. <laughs> um, concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not to one another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you uh, once again on this Lord's Day that we're able to come together as um, as your people, as your church, as, as the body of believers, to come and to worship you and to praise you for who you are, to, to sing songs about all that you've done and the mighty work of salvation and redemption that you offer to us. Uh, Father, we thank you um, incredibly, um, incredibly thankful for the grace that you've given to us each and every day, even the grace that uh, we often overlook. Thank you for your, your love for each and every one of us here. We thank you for uh, the goodness and the mercy that you give to us each day. And as we uh, look in, in this text here this morning, I pray that you would uh, continue to reveal yourself and um, just the complete holiness and continue to reveal yourself in all of your glory this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So after reading this text, uh, we're looking at this and we're going, okay, you can read through here. we got two different lists, right? Verse 5, big list. 
verse 8, a little bit smaller, but some different things are going to be in here. And this is going to be a text where when often preached, this is why I asked the question, how many of you ever heard, hey, church is a list of do's and don'ts, a whole bunch of rules. It's things like this to where you look at this and go, man, this whole set of verses, 5 through 9, I'm basically told to put away these things. I can't do any of these things. See, church is a whole bunch of lists. That's all it is. So I want to make it clear as we're going to go through this that that's not the way that this should be perceived. Um, again, this morning it may be a little bit uncomfortable because we're probably looking at this list and saying, uh-oh, right? If you're anything like me or we're all being honest with ourselves, we look at this list and say, uh-oh, that's not great. Kind of wish that this was left out. Maybe that was a mistake. Maybe this was in the parentheses and Paul didn't really mean to include it. Um, I also want to point out that the attention this morning is going to be far less on each individual thing on the list as opposed to what it is that he's actually trying to convey by doing so. Um, I'm not going to spend 10 minutes looking at each individual part because there's something much greater and much larger at play. So again, all of these things are viewed within our position in Christ. So how are we going to get our practice, our behavior, the way that we live to actually match our position. Again, he said, you are a new creation. You are alive in Christ. You are completely made new. So now he's moving into the practical portion, which even the first two chapters, by the way, are practical. Theology is practical. How we view God is incredibly practical for our lives. But here, we're going to more easily attach these things. Using language that we don't always use. If you do, I would love to hear you talk more. Um, verse 5, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. This means to put to death these things. Actually putting them to death. This is not simply, well, try to avoid it when you can, or just don't do it so much, or put these things, just let them sleep a little bit. And No, put to death. This is killing. This is the, one of the strongest things that he's going to be talking about. One of the ways to portray this. You need to start killing some of these things in your life. Again, mortify is not a word that we always use, but I absolutely love this understanding of it. Put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. So, again, keeping in mind all of the position that's already been stated, that all of these things are only going to be possible because of the first two chapters. These are results that we are to, to strive for because of being in Christ. This is not to create a moral person, a person with good behavior, to simply modify the way that a person is going to act. This is, you are alive in Christ, you are found in Christ, therefore, put away these things because you are no longer this person. You are dead to these things. Everything discussed up to this point, only made possible by being positionally in Christ, receiving His righteousness, being made holy by God, and being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Again, all three members of the Trinity perfectly at work. And so we look at this text and you go, okay, even an, even a, an unbeliever can come in here this morning and, a, and an atheist can come and say, okay, some of these things I understand, and especially as we go through down to verse 8. Yeah, these aren't great things, and many people are understanding this. But there's an important distinction that I think we need to make is that God is much less concerned about a moral people than he is a holy people. And that's an important distinction because there's a lot of good moral people. Many of us know them, right? We know people who are incredibly moral. In fact, we know people who we would say they have a better understanding of morality than a lot of people in church based on how we per perceive it. 
But this is the, the essence of the Bible. It's not God, there's not times where God is saying, hey guys, just be immoral people. Just do the good things and you're going to be fine. All the time, it's creating a holy people. This is because God is holy. He is perfectly holy. And in offering His holiness, he, do, he requires and demands and makes a holy people. In 1 Peter chapter 2, when he's writing to believers, he's saying that you are a... Does he say that you are a moral people? No, you're a holy nation. You're not a moral nation. You're a holy nation. You're set apart, sanctified for the work of God. And this is why it's so hard. You talk to, to an unbeliever, you talk to an atheist who's very much against God, but yet they're incredibly moral, right? They say, well, I don't, I don't cheat on my husband or my wife. I, I take care of my kids. I, I give to the poor. I, I love all these people. I do all of these different things. And we see the list, right? And those are incredible things. They're great moral things. And then they say, so what's the difference between the people in church, those who have received Christ, and what it is that I do? Because we look at it and we can wait the list and say, but if I do more, then why, is that, why do I need Christ if I'm more moral, if I do more good things? So what's the difference between a missionary who goes and builds a, a house or a hospital or does any of those things in a foreign land compared to a person or an organization that's simply humanitarian in their efforts, that simply is giving and loving and cares about people and just wants to build a hospital or set up a building. What is the difference between those two people? They're doing the same thing, right? They're accomplishing the same task, but the difference is one is a moral person and the Christian, the one who goes bringing the message of the gospel with them in order to actually share the gospel is the holy person, only made holy because of Christ and by God. And this is an important distinction to make because when we have conversations, it's important to make the distinction between moral and holy. A lot of people can be moral. That's the law being written on the hearts in Jeremiah. That's pretty clear. Most people know right from wrong, right? Kids kind of figure it out pretty quickly. A lot of people tend to know right from wrong. Now, they don't always do it. And a holy person doesn't always do it. But the difference is the message of the gospel, the being sanctified, being set apart by God for these purposes. There are incredible people that we can look at, and I'm not going to go ahead and name them because it might be jarring to some of you, um, but it also is just not really the point. People that have done incredible works for, for humanity, great uh, philanthropists, done incredible things, hate God. So there's a difference. There's an incredible difference here. And again, I'm spending time because this is the, the thing that's going to set us apart from behavior modification and being positionally in Christ, and this is now the result of it. So this isn't a legalistic idea of, hey, God just doesn't want you to be able to do anything in your life. He just wants you to sit there under a tree and just pray the entire day. Okay, so don't come away with this legalistic overtone. It's because of who you are, now this is how our practice is going to match our position. I promise we're going to actually look at the verses here. I promise. So, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Put these things to death. Now, does this mean, okay, um, so what are the different body parts that I have? Okay, I have a left hand. I'm supposed to put these things to death, so I need to cut it off. Because some people say, yes, this is what it means. There are people who have done so. They physically are hurting themselves or cutting off different parts of their body that are giving them troubles because that is, they take this verse and they say, you have to cut it off. Right? Well, I can't stop kicking my kid in the back of the head, so I need to cut my foot off. That, that's illogical, right? Many of us, I think, you guys are all pretty smart. You're sensible people. That's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. 
The point here is what he's trying to convey. It's not killing the actual body, but the deeds of the body. A person who has a hard time um, just hitting people wherever they go, you're, you're going to a football game and you're just punching people left and right, okay? You just tell them, you know what your problem is? Your hands. We need to cut off your hands. That's going to solve the problem. It's not because you just want to punch people and there's other issues. That doesn't change anything. The deeds of the body, not the physical body. And we'll see that a little bit more played out. Flip over briefly to Romans chapter 6. Look at verses 11 through 13. And somehow the sticky note that I had is no longer in my Bible. But in Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 13... He's talking about this newness of life. Again, he's saying that he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall live with him. Again, Paul is writing to the Romans, echoing much of what's in Colossians. But in verses 11 through 13, here's what he says. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. And let's just read verse 14. For sin shall, have, shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. So we see this conversation here as he's writing about different instruments. These are instruments either to unrighteousness or to righteousness. The instrument itself is not going to be the problem. Your hand is not the actual problem if you just can't stop walking around slapping people in the face. Because it's with the same hand that you can hold a child, that you can lovingly help and care for other people, that you can hand a Bible to a person. This is why something like the tongue Many of us are familiar with, with James and his exposition of the tongue. It's incredibly wicked. It's hard to control. No man can do so. If they say that they have controlled it, they're lying to you. To which I would say, just talk to him for a minute. Make fun of him. Bet you that tongue's going to come out pretty fierce, right? Maybe that's just me. Apparently not. But, but I know it's not just me. It's okay. So he's making it clear, it's not killing just the body, but the deeds of the body, because they are merely the instruments, either for righteousness or for unrighteousness. So we're going to look here at this list, and again, we're going to move kind of quickly at each individual thing, because keeping in mind the bigger scope of it, what Paul is doing here in writing about this, is he's using um, a literary device known as metonymy. Some of you uh, grammar people that love it or love literary devices, you're super jazzed right now because this never gets mentioned. Brittany was excited. I showed her the word and she almost cried. She loves it. It's, uh, it's awkward, but she really does love it. Right? Paul is using this device where you substitute one thing clo cl that's closely associated for what it is that you meant. Now, I've never heard this in my life, but this is something that maybe you have said to a child or to a kid or to one of your kids. When you say to them, because you're in a conversation, you're telling them something, you don't like their response, and you say, don't give me any lip. Okay, I've obviously, you know, and my grandma and my aunt are here, so they can testify to this. I've never heard something like this in my life. Never. But when you're saying to a kid, don't give me any lip, is it because they actually took off their lips and threw it at you? Hopefully, no. You're substituting because the lips are so associated with the words, right? You're really saying, don't talk back to me. And again, 
I've never talked back. Okay? Um, that actually gets me in trouble a lot. Me and Peter have a thing going on about our foot in our mouth. So don't give me any lip. That's one way we understand. The other one that's probably most common is give me a hand, right? Give me a hand. Hey, can you give me a hand with this? No one's cutting off their hand, throwing their hand at you. Um, some shows and different movies, you've actually probably seen this, the, the irony of, hey, can you give me a hand? And someone just throws like a rubber hand at a person. It's hilarious to me. Not many of you. There's like three of you, and I know who you are. I think that's funny because we have the same sense of humor. But it doesn't make actual, any actual sense, right? So put these things, these members, which are upon the earth to death, not the physical ones, but putting to death these deeds, these understandings of these things. So as he continues on, we're going to see it. But he gives these two lists, and the first list here in verse 5 is these things that are all summed up with unholy love or unrighteous or, um, or, or a perverted sort of love. So the first thing that we start off with is fornication. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Put to death these things and starts with fornication. This is sexual immorality. This is talked about all throughout all of Scripture. And the understanding that we have currently in our culture is, I, I say this all the time, we are not an exclusive generation where this is the first time that, that something as far as sexual immorality is rampant. Whether it's, we just see it more on television and in movies and in different ways. Um, some of you guys grew up in generation before me. You were around in the 60s. You don't remember it, but you grew up in the 60s. Okay, so I, I know a lot about that to know that we, this generation and this time is not, a, the, uh, not the, the only one. But it's such an important thing because if you're familiar with the Bible, you've been in church any amount of time, you know how often it's talking about this. The sexual relationship being strictly for the context of a marriage relationship. Anything outside of that is perverting something that God has given for that relationship. Why is that important? Because it's meant to, to show Christ and the union and the love for the church. It's not simply just for us. It's meant to mean something so much greater. It shows who God is, and we understand all of this. There's a, a site that, um, that talks a lot about the dangers and the, um, the effects of pornography on our culture. Um, and again, hopefully today is a little bit uncomfortable. I'm not uncomfortable um, because I think it's an important issue to talk about. It's um, fightthenewdrug.org, whatever. Some of you guys may be familiar with it. Um, it talks a lot about how, how rampant pornography is, especially in this culture now, um, for people essentially within my generation, how um, the numbers have dramatically increased throughout the last 15 to 20 years. Um, it, it talks a lot about um, how, how pornography kills love because it gives one um, an unrealistic idea of what a relationship is. And it goes into all these different things and it talks about how this is the new drug for the current culture, for my generation, for this time. It's not so much other things, but this is something that is so widespread. In 2017 alone, there was over 28.5 billion views on one pornography site. Just one, 28.5 billion views. Just on one of the largest ones, 28.5 billion. This is an incredible, incredible uh, threat to what it is. When you're talking about a marriage relationship, about a healthy understanding of the sexual relationship and all these things, this is absolutely killing all the understanding of this. And it's important because I understand, and as a parent, Obviously, my kids are five, three, and almost six months, and this is something that, um, not something I'm totally concerned with at this age. Understanding that we're going to have to have conversations, we're going to have to have the understanding, and obviously there's some younger people mixed in here. Um, it's, it's important to talk about because it is the reality 
the age where kids are first now being introduced to it, because a lot of times they just stumble across it, you can simply mistype a word for a, a link to go to a website, and a lot of sites are buying this up for misspellings to be able to have kids drift upon it. So the, the average age now, and what tends to be the most common age for this, kids are stumbling upon it at 11 years old. 11. And the reason I'm stopping here for a minute is because think about the ramifications of all these things. This has an effect. It actually, and science has shown this, it rewires your brain. And it kills, again, love. You have, there's no understanding of respect. There's no understanding of all these different things. I don't need to explain all of it. But understanding that 28.5 billion views on one site in 2017 alone. So we're in the age group of 18 to 30 uh, on surveys. It's, the number's about 87% regularly view. So it's kind of hard to have these kind of statistics, to know the reality and to say, well, that's probably not an issue um, at our church or in our area or in our schools. How foolish that would be. Imagine if this was anything else. And because the stigma too often is, well, that's a little bit different and we just don't like to talk about that. You're going to have to talk about it at some point. And hopefully it's not too late. So the reason I'm stopping for a minute, and probably some of you guys feel uncomfortable and I completely understand but this is something where as parents we have the, the obligation to, to train our kids, to help them understand all of these different things. So he's saying, put away these members which are upon the earth in fornication and understanding this. And then he moves into uncleanness. And this is a, um uncleanness and then what we have in the next couple things between inordinate affection and kind of the rest of the list until, until we get to covetousness. This is all the understanding of all being stimulated from evil thoughts, whether it be passion or evil desire or uncleanness. This is an unholy affection, an unholy love for these different things. Saying, put these things away. But not just put them away, as in we're going to put them in the garage and they'll, they'll come out later. You are putting them to death, to kill them, to actually put them so they can no longer have any hold, no longer do anything. Ask this question a lot. What can a dead person do? Nothing, right? They should be able to do nothing because they are no more. So put these things away. And all stimulated from these evil thoughts and looking at the different words there. And I'm going to speed it up because I already taken a lot of time. This is why in Romans chapter 12, Paul discusses the renewing of our mind, right? Because all of the things that we do come out of our thoughts. A lot of times you hear, well, I can't control what I think about. Things just pop into my head. Okay? Well, you can kind of control it. You can certainly get rid of it. You can definitely control your thought patterns. It comes in. You can choose to send it away. You can retrain your brain to have the understanding and how to think. You can train your thought patterns. You can do these things. Romans chapter 12 talks about not being conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind controls everything. You control the mind, you control your actions. You're going to control your heart. You're going to control all of it. You remember about a month and a half ago, we talked about the heart and the bowels, right? Again, I told you, I'm going to come back talking about the bowels every chance I get. It's hilarious. You don't hear it in church, but it's funny. The bowels is the emotions, the feelings, because the Hebrew didn't understand these abstract thoughts of, I feel anxious. It was, I feel it in my bowels, the core of, like, me as a person, I just, I feel uneasy. So they said they would feel it in their bowels. 
Whereas we talked about the heart, and that was the combination of the mind and the will, the whole of a person, the things that drives them, the will of the person. And so he's saying all these things, and it shows as we progress through verse 5 that these are the things that come out of the thoughts. So don't let someone tell you that your mind is not going to be important. It's all about how you feel. Because how you feel should be informed by what we know, how we think, right? When, if I get into an argument with Brittany, which obviously doesn't happen, but if she says something, the way that I feel is a response to how, what I am taking in in my mind and perceiving as what she said. So my mind can be wrong at times, but as long as it's informed by what I know to be true, then my feelings can be informed by that. Which is why when bad things come across and we start to, and we're feeling anxious and we're sad and we're hurt, we don't let those feelings take over so much as we come back to the truth of knowing, but God is still sovereign and God is still good and God is still full of grace and full of mercy and all of these things. And then that should inform the way that we feel and the way that we respond. One of the biggest roots and one that is often not discussed too much is covetousness. Coveting. And then he closes in verse 5 by saying, which is idolatry? Coveting. It, it was on that first list of ten that was given out, right? Ten commandments, do not covet. What is coveting? Wanting what someone else has. You're not happy with what you have. You see something that's forbidden and you desire it. What's one of the greatest examples that we know of this? We look at Adam and Eve in the garden. They say, hey, I see that and I want that. They were coveting. But think about all that they had already. This is always the most astounding thing to me, and I fully am aware that I would have done the same thing that they did. I understand that. But they got to walk with God in the garden. They had all that was available to them, all these incredible things, and they didn't have a bunch of kids running around picking at them. I love my kids, I promise. They had all of these things, and it, wasn't, it just wasn't enough. They coveted the fruit that they weren't supposed to have. They saw it. They desired what was forbidden. They looked in the desire. The Bible tells us all the time, your biggest problem is you see things and you desire it because you're not happy with what you have. You always want something more. You look at your neighbor and say, man, I really like that. I want that. We see this with David, right? We see this. He's looking upon another man's wife, seeing Bathsheba, and is not satisfied with all that he has in his life and says, I see her and that's what I want. And we understand how all of that played out. Coveting is such an incredible root of so much of our, of our sin and so much of our issues. And why? Because it's idolatry. Because we are saying, God, I, I see that and I want that and that's what I desire. And God says, yeah, but I've told you it's forbidden. And as we continue to covet, we say, I know you said it's forbidden, but instead of worshiping and bowing down to you and obeying you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bow down to myself. I'm going to worship myself. I'm going to obey myself and step forward and do what I want making myself the authority on all things. And this is the core of the human condition, of the complete depravity of man, is that we see things that are forbidden, and we know that they're forbidden, and we honestly, we just don't care, and we do it anyways. This is such a main source of all these issues. Coveting is the root of all evil deeds. It's an oldie, but it's not a goodie, right? It's been there forever. It's not going away. And it's not great. So Paul is clear. You must kill these things. Put them to death. This is not trimming the hedges and saying, well, it'll grow back, but as long as I keep it kind of contained a little bit, it's going to be fine. Kill it. You're uprooting that thing. You're grinding it down. You're taking it out so it no longer has any life. 
So how is it that you're supposed to put that, these things to death? How do you kill these things? How do you kill coveting? By being content. Simple. I understand you're probably saying, hey, that wasn't really intelligent or super creative. Nope, it's not my job to be creative. Being content. Why is it that Paul says he has learned to be content in all things? And I tell you, he probably in a lot of his times had a lot to be coveting, to look and to desire. Something as simple as being able to walk around outside freely. These are the simple things that even Paul has said, even though I am in chains, I have learned to be content in all things. An incredible understanding of being content. And this is the true essence of thankfulness, isn't it? That yes, could you, could, do you want more? Could you have more? Absolutely. But you're content with what you have because you are thankful, understanding that God has given it to you. Being thankful. My generation does a really terrible job of that. We, I, I grew up always having TV, microwave, Nintendo, all these different things, right? Assuming that that's just the way one it always was, you know? And thinking that it always should be that way and that, we, that I deserved things. I deserve these things. Why? Because I was born. As if I earned it, right? By being born through no will of my own. Being content, being thankful. And all of that is simply based on our trust in God, isn't it? How much do you trust Him? Can you be content in this situation? Can you be content with all that you have right now? You can if you trust Him. And obviously we learn to trust Him more the more that we know Him. The more that you study the Bible, the more that you see who God is, see that He's sure to keep His promises in every situation, even though it's far worse than what we actually can go through at times, we see that He's trustworthy. We see all these things. This is why so often in the New Testament, this saying is trustworthy, because God is trustworthy. And we'll move quickly through the remaining verses. Verse 6, For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. Do we see yet another contrast that's going on here? In verse 6, it becomes very clear that God is going to act in judgment. We see this in the whole of Romans chapter 1, particularly verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. Fact. Just like in the song, we understand that these are ever-present realities of the, of the eternity of hell and God's wrath against the unrighteousness of man. Now, that would be a very depressing end to the text, wouldn't it? Hey, God's going to act in judgment on these things. Oh, that's it. Let's go home. But it continues. Verse 7, In the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. Well, that's interesting. He's saying, hey, do you remember? You used to do these things, but you no longer are to be these things. This was your life while you were dead to Christ. You were not alive in Christ. You were living after the world. You were in the world system. That's all that you knew. But you were no longer that thing. This would be like me, any of you talking to each other as adults and saying, hey, you are not a child anymore. Stop doing what children do. And that's not like playing and having fun at the playground and slides and all that, because I still get out there and play a little bit. Okay, I'm still young enough and spry enough. But he's saying, you used to walk this way in which you walked. This used to be your only pattern. Going to go back to the song. I'm so happy that they sang the song. Great job, guys. Your works are filthy rags. This is your only pattern. The good moral things apart from Christ are what? Filthy rags. They're worthless. They're not going to be taken. Because everything comes back to the righteousness of Christ and understanding our sinful state. Saying, you used to do this, but now you are different. 
what he already laid out in verses 1 through 4. You are dead to sin, you are alive in Christ. A new creation, and in chapter 2, verse 10 said, you are complete in him. So we're not lacking in anything. We're not still wanting more. You have Christ. He is complete. He is sufficient. You are complete in him. Don't go back. It makes no sense. This, you're, you've been released from prison. You're free of bondage. Who's running back to the chains? At times it seemed like Paul was, but he wasn't trying to go back to chains. He was going and sharing about the beauty of the grace and the redemption and the salvation that Christ has given. And because of that, he received chains. So verse 6 and 7 quite simply, is you are no longer these things. You used to do this. Coming on children of disobedience and judgment was coming. However, you used to do these things, but no more. Now we get to our second list, and these ones we all understand uh, very well. It's going to be a progression, and he starts in verse 8, but now he also put off all these things. That putting off carried the idea of taking off a bunch of dirty clothes after a long day of being in the mess come home, you put off these clothes. You take them off. That means you're no longer wearing them, correct? It's not there anymore. You put them off. You put them away. So we're going to see a progression that's going on here. He's saying, don't go back and doing these things. Don't go, you're supposed to be putting these off. Do not go back and put on these dirty clothes. How many of you get horribly dirty and messy, rolling around with maybe, for an example, rolling around with pigs all day? Because I'm sure you guys do that all the time. You, you go, you take a shower, you get all cleaned off, and you're like, man, this is so much better. This is awesome. I feel clean. I feel great. And you're all cleaned up and all of these things. And then you're like, but you know what I really want? I want those dirty clothes back on. It's ridiculous. It makes absolutely no sense. But how often we do this in our life of saying, hey, I'm alive in Christ. I, I've received the righteousness that God offers to where he's given um, his robe of righteousness to where the Father looks upon us and he sees his son and we're like, hey, that's a cool robe, but I got these dirty clothes that are really cool. And we like to wear them for a time and we keep trading back and forth. Put these things off. Put these dirty clothes off, these rags. Get them out of here. Put them to death. That means get rid of them. Don't even try to clean them and make them look better. They're done. Throw it out. Then he touches on something I think a lot of us have an understanding of. Here in the list, and it's going to progress, but now put off also these things, anger. Man, anger is kind of a universal emotion, right? A lot of us have a lot of same types of emotions. This anger, the understanding was a swelling up, a smoldering, kind of like uh, the embers. It's burning a little bit, and so you're getting a little bit of smoke, right? It's starting to build up. This is the inside. It's building up. person building up with anger. This is the understanding of here where it's just continuing to build up. So putting off these things. Oh, but it gets deeper, right? Anger's not enough. Then it gets into wrath, or this could also be rage. This is the outburst of passion to where it's starting at anger. It's building up, and you're, you're resenting these things. It's continuing to build up, and then it comes into wrath or rage to where it just bursts out. The outburst of your rage, of the wrath, of this passion, to where it's now it's flying out. The Greeks understood this as setting fire in straw. It is incredibly fierce, but it's also quick. Incredibly fierce, but also quick. And you hear, well, yeah, I mean, he gets really angry, but he calms down a little bit after. Like, it's really bad for a time, but then it calms down. Or you have people that are coworkers, or maybe it's your boss, or maybe someone that, that works with you, and it's like, yeah, he's got a real big issue with anger, but it, it never gets to the point where you really, it comes out, Right? 
Or maybe because you see how angry someone is, it builds up in you, and then you get angry because someone's angry, which makes no sense, but it happens. And then all of a sudden it bursts forth in this rage or this, this wrath where it's just completely out there, and you're ranting, and you're going nuts for about five minutes, and you get done, and then just whew, settles down, right? Fire and straw. It's fierce, but it's quick. It goes away. Uh, but then he continues on. Malice. This is the intention to do evil. This is ill will. You wish malice or have an ill will, an intention to actually do evil, to where first it's, oh, it's building up in me. I'm not really a fan of this. It's really bothering me. It's bubbling up. It's smoldering. Now it's coming out, and it's bursting forth, and then now you actually have the willful intention to do evil. This is why you're here. Do you have, have malice in your heart, the intention, a will to do evil? We know plenty of people like that. We can look through all of history and we see these kind of things. And then ultimately we see where it closes out in verse 8 here at the end. With blasphemy and filthy communication out of your mouth to where it's been building up in you. It's bursting forth. Now you have an intention to do evil. And then ultimately where does it come out? Out of your mouth. Out of, you know, out of, out of the, the mouth the heart speaks, Right? You want to know what a person feels in their heart? Listen to them talk. Pretty simple. What do we talk about the most? The things we love the most. It's a very, very simple thing. And so where we see this deepening from, it moves from emotions to now it moves into malice to where you have the intention. It's now in your mind to do these things. And then it comes out in your speech, revealing it to everybody, the, the nature of the heart. So he's saying it very clearly. Put off all of these things. And again, it goes deeper. It moves from anger into wrath, into an intention to do so, and then coming out through the mouth. And then it closes in verse 9 by saying something I think we would all agree to and would, would love to see everywhere in our life. Lie not to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. I mean, this is elementary stuff, isn't it? I know you're probably saying, hey, I get some of these things. I under we know that we're not supposed to do this. So a lot of people understand it. A lot of people would say, even those apart from the church would say, yeah, probably shouldn't be angry, probably shouldn't wish ill will upon people. You probably shouldn't degrade them publicly or slander them in, in public. This is very basic, very elementary things, but how important is it that we understand how serious this is? Because how often do we forget to actually live this way? Where our practice doesn't match our position. And kind of in closing, I look at this lying not to one another um, Kind of a way to illustrate this is, um, is my son. Okay, he's five now, which I was telling Richard. He's five now. He's not afraid of spiders anymore. Maddie was freaking out because there was a spider at the house, and he ran over and just stomped it out. And he came back like all you know, breathing in, puffed up, and everything. And he's like, "Hey, Daddy, I'm not afraid of spiders anymore." I was like, "Oh, why?" He goes, "Because I'm five. And he was he laughed and went so serious, like, "I'm five. It was very, very serious. Five-year-olds, not scared of spiders. Who knew? But we keep having this conversation about lying and trying to get them to understand why you don't lie to where, and it's something my father always told me, is because then I can't believe you when you're telling me things that are true. How do I know the difference? To where you're lying to me, well then, if a person is always lying to you, do you really trust and believe them when they say something like, I love you or I care about you or I'll do this? Very difficult to tell. Not only is just lying not okay, and we understand this, quite simply, but it has such incredible effects. And being able to do this, um, you can agree or disagree, 
with this. But in talking with him, I was like, okay, since we keep having these conversations about lying, I said, this is great. Because I asked him who did this or what happened, and he always blames his sister. Typical older brother trick, okay? I'm the youngest. I was a victim. Okay, not many youngest in here. I get it, but that's fine. He blames his sister because, I mean, she probably did have something to do with it, but also it's just easier, right? He wants to blame her. Well, it's not me. It was just Maddie. So that's his first response all the time is, Maddie did it. So I was like, okay, that's fine. And obviously after a little while, you interrogate him a little bit, ask some questions, and you come to find out he's lying. All right. So I said, Benjamin, here's what we're going to do. Because you keep lying and you don't really understand, um, we need to work on this. I am going, you will be in trouble and you will be punished whenever Maddie does something wrong. Because you want to blame her. You're wanting her to get in trouble for what you did. That's great. So now you are going to be in trouble if she does something wrong. Ooh, he did not like this. And his response was, but Maddie's always in trouble. <laughs> okay? Because Maddie's the one that just can't seem to get it, get it right a lot. Just, I don't know. She's stubborn, but I love it. Um, so he's understanding, and he said, I'm always going to be in trouble then. I'll be in trouble forever. He's not wrong, but it's funny. Because he understood, well, she doesn't obey that much. This is not going to go well for me. And he said what a lot of kids say, that's not fair, because I didn't do it. Oh, this is incredible, right? When a kid starts talking to you about fairness, oh, it's beautiful. But being able to show him, okay, yeah, that's obviously not fair, but that's what we're going to do because you have to understand lying. And he said, but that's not fair. I shouldn't be punished if I didn't do it. Okay, he's five. He's understanding some things. He's logical. It's great. But think about being able to have that conversation and understanding what he's saying. It's not fair that I should get punished for the wrong things that she has done. That's not something that's fair. That's not right. And so then being able to ask him, okay, so Benji, why was Jesus on the cross then? Why did he go to the cross? Did he do anything wrong? No. Who did? I did, and you did, and everybody did. I said, well, Benji, that's not fair. Why would, why, that, why would that happen? That's not fair, right? He shouldn't have done that. Why did he do it? Because he loved us. The, the privilege to be able to once again just talk about those things and relating this lying and having him being punished for something someone else did and being able to say, yeah, as horrible and unfair as that sounds to you, you've still done things that are wrong. Jesus went to the cross taking our punishment for the sins that we willfully continue to do. This list doesn't even touch on all the different things. Yet he still walked to the cross being beaten, spit on, mocked, the creator of all the world, the one who is sufficient to save, the one who in their song they're singing about without the blood, essentially there's nothing, no hope, the perfect and sinless, spotless Lamb of God coming to take away the sins of the world, never doing anything wrong, becoming sin, taking away all of our sin, all of our shame, giving us his righteousness. I want to talk about fair. That's a terrible deal for him. But why did he do it? Because of his love and for his own glory. And it's so important in understanding all of these things. And something as simple, and this is what I love about being a parent, is I learn so much more about the biblical truth and how these are actually relating out than I ever did before any of them were born. I am learning so much more about who God is by talking with the kids, seeing these things, and saying, oh my goodness, like I, did, like I knew it, but I didn't know it. And some of you have probably experienced that too. 
Have you ever noticed how often people lie in the Bible? It's like the whole book of Genesis, right? Like, that's all we see forever. From Satan, the serpent, deceiving Adam and Eve, and then Adam and Eve are lying to God, like kind of right to his face, which is not wise. Um, then Cain is lying, and then Abraham starts lying, and then Rebecca's lying, and it just continues on, right? We're really, really good at that. It's from the very beginning. Do a study on it. Try to mark down all the lies in the Bible. In about 10 years, let me know what you got. So he's saying to put off all of these things. Quite simply, put them to death. How is it that you kill these things? We already talked about being content and, and being thankful for what it is that we have and how that will kill a lot of these things. And then here, quite simply, don't feed into it. You starve these things. You put them to death by starving it. You don't want to have anger, wrath, malice, rage, all of these different things. Starve it. So don't. Turn, turn away from it. Put it to death. Putting on the Spirit. Again, continuing to know who God is, who He claims to be, all of His attributes. The more that we know Him, the more that we trust Him. You say you can't control your thoughts, but you can definitely control your thought patterns. This is the battle of the Christian. It's not perfection attained on earth to where there is no longer any sin in your life. Because you are painfully much more aware of the battle than you ever were apart from Christ. Before, it was all you knew. That was the pattern of the world. That was the system you were in. You had no problem willfully participating in each and every list that we ever find biblically. We say, well, why not? Whereas now, being dead to these things, alive in Christ, so painfully aware of it, aren't you? Grieved by these things, we understand it because we're offending a holy God. We understand who God is and, and who we are. But again, we don't feed our coveting. We're thankful for all that God has given. And most importantly, He's given what? Redemption and salvation. Forgiveness of sins because of His blood. And this is why we're here this morning. This is why we study verse by verse to see who God is, to see what He asks of His people because of who they are, not just a cold, hard list of do's and don'ts, like a honey-do list and do this, and if you don't, it's going to be bad for you. But to show Himself, to show His beauty, to show His glory, and to say, do you remember who you are? Because of this, now your practice will match your position. And I'm incredibly thankful um, that's because of who we are in Christ and not just a cold list of do this and don't do this. And, and that's all the other religions is you have to do these things to earn favor. Where he says, hey, I've already offered you redemption by grace through faith. You've, you've come to be redeemed. So now here's what we do out of loving obedience to our Lord. Just an incredible truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you just once again for this time of being able to to come and to study your word and to be, to be kind of prodded with these things of, of evaluation where we look in our, at ourselves and we look and when you give these lists, understanding that, that yes, we can evaluate these lists and we can look at these individual things and, and match ourselves up and we know that we fall 